Welcome to Conversations from Here with me, Dana Ziegler. Today I talk with musician, impresario, actor, comic, and recovering Austinite, Troy Dillinger. Any resemblance between him and the famous bank robber may or may not be entirely coincidental. Join us for a wide-ranging meander through beginnings in Texas, finding music, hitting the big time, getting sober, innovating new avenues of entertainment, mitigating the perils of tombstones, cutting losses, learning life lessons, and making the leap to Los Angeles. Oh, and there is a lot of cussing going on in this episode, so for those with sensitive ears, you have been warned. Hope you enjoy the talk. Here's me and Troy. Hey there, Troy Dillinger. Welcome to Conversations from Here. Thanks so much for doing this. Hi, Dana. Thanks for having me. This is like such a huge honor. You know, it's been so great to be able to reach out to people that I haven't talked to in a long time. Um, and uh, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's been a great, it's been a great, great gift. But I know you from the Clown House and yeah. doing comedy all those years ago. And, um, and I, when I think of Austin, I think of you. <laughs> but, but you, you, you weren't actually born in Austin, were you? No, we, my family moved there when I was eight. Yeah. And, this, and you're from the Midwest, I think you said, right? Yeah, I was born in Ohio, in Canton, Ohio. And um, we moved to Austin when I was eight. And then uh, I moved out here in January of uh, 2017, like right at the beginning of 2017. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then did you, so um, can we talk about the, the Dillinger thing? That, oh, that yeah. story? Yeah. Uh, your your connection with John Dillinger, the, yeah. the infamous uh, bank robber. Yeah, I'm an open book. Um, I you know here's the thing is I don't have a definitive answer. Um, I don't have I don't have the the DNA test or anything like that. And um, uh, what I look exactly like him. Like if yeah, he, you do. <laughs> you do. I looked up. I'm like whoa. That's- yeah. If you put pictures of us side by side, we have like the same dimple on our chin. We have this stuff, like this one eye is a little lower and a little lazy. I got this uh, kind of weird hairline. It's like, it's identical. But when I was a kid, I used to ask my grandfather, you know, I said, oh, Grandpa, are we related to John Dillinger? And he'd say, no, we're not related to that outlaw. And uh, I was like, okay. Um, you know, like, and he was like very it upset him greatly. And so I just thought all my life, oh, well, I just look a lot like him, but apparently we're not related. Um, and then I started getting a little curious and I started kind of doing a little uh, looking around and my grandfather's father's name was Joe. And I'm, I'm, my middle name is Joseph after Joe. And then his father's name was Joe. And then Dillinger's father had a brother named Joe. So, um, and... and here I am in Canton, Ohio, Dillinger's up in Illinois. And um, I was like, well, that kind of, and then um, my, uh, my cousin, who's a couple years older than me, I, I said, why does, you know, we're related, aren't we? And he goes, look, grandpa doesn't talk about it. He doesn't like it because when he was a kid and Dillinger was robbing banks, Dillinger's the reason 
there's FDIC, why the government insures bank accounts now. And what would happen is Dillinger would go rob these small farm town banks and every farmer, every family who had a little bit of money would put their money in the bank. And when Dillinger would rob the bank, he would get all that money and it wasn't insured. And those people got ripped off by John Dillinger. So people in my, in our community were poor because of John Dillinger. And they would beat my grandfather up because he looked like him too. Mm. Um, our name is Dillinger. We're from that area. And so I, I think, so my cousin says, yes, we are. Um, you know, grand, grandpa said no. And then there's all these people, there's, there's these rabid people who are very um, proprietary with Dillinger. They write books and there's societies and groups and they're all like, you're not related to, you know, Beryl Hovis and which is, you know, there's like all these people and there's like, there's uh, schisms of people and I, I'm not, you know, nobody, nobody wants to use me as, as their pawn. So I, they all say I'm not related, but you know, so anyways, it's a big mess. I haven't bothered. Well, here's what I can tell you. I come from a long line of uh, men who are criminals, womanizers, and alcoholics. And um, uh, that's, and we all look like this. So as best I can tell, if we're not, then why not? <laughs> you know, the thing that I find really interesting is how there's a cult of personality even some with someone who is considered an undesirable mm -hmm. and that there are factions and schisms within this kind of cult of personality and what is it about people that that makes them have these fixations i always find that interesting well i think i think at the time a lot of the dillinger legend was from people who weren't in the midwest or, or weren't in his area or getting ripped off by him not getting robbed yeah yeah, yeah. i think i think um i think uh if you look that's around the time of the after the stock market crashed the dust bowl a lot of people were poor dead broke and here's dillinger out there saying hey you're not you're not keeping me down i'm gonna go take it from the the man you know and um i think that that played a big part into that that kind of legend you know yeah because the bulk of the robberies happened after he got out of prison escaped from prison and it was in 1933 so it was four years after the stock market crash of 1929 and of course he didn't last long after that because he was killed in in um in 1934 yeah. and um and i forget which theater in chicago that he was caught yeah. in. yes yeah and, uh, and, and it was a whole sting operation. And, and this was the beginnings of, of course, the FBI. So it plays into that whole thing. Jad yeah. Hoover was obsessed with him. And um, yeah, it's a fascinating story. So look I've, at you. <laughs> I've written a screenplay about, about Dillinger and, and about that side, about, about you know, not, his, not necessarily his, his criminal side, just that the criminal side w was an outcropping of his his personal demons, like because I I get it, you know, like I I'm, I'm I think I'm motivated by a lot of that same stuff. He had a, his father was abusive, you know, and that's that's also kind of a you know that's been a thing that's come down the family tree as well. 
And so there's certain things I just understand. Like when I, the more I learn about Dillinger's story, the more I go, oh yeah, well, that's why he was, that's why he chased women. You know, that's why, you know, that's why he was always trying to get something for nothing. That's why he was always trying to show off that, you know, um, so I, a lot of that stuff makes sense. And so I wrote, I've got, I've got this partial screenplay that I, I kind of had to set aside uh, about a year ago, so. But it's there, it's on the back burner. Yes, it, yeah, it started, I, I was, I had a co-writer who was saying he could, he could get it sold if I would finish it, and then I got too busy to finish it, and I haven't, I, I don't think busy is my real excuse. I've learned, I've learned now as a creative, if something's not, if I'm not jumping into something, then there's a reason for me to not be doing it, and I just don't push myself in that way anymore, because it makes me too crazy. Yeah, well, it's it's kind of you know when you when you follow the path of least resistance, I think it's important to do that because that's where your that's where your energies are focused, and yeah. that's the stream that you should take. That's the one that you put your kayak in. Yeah, that's the one that's moving. Yeah. Um, because I think a, a lot of for a lot of people they try to do too many things at once. Yeah. Um, I, I, I have the disease of many interests. I'm sure you can relate to that. And so like, I'm, I'm fascinated by so many things that usually I've got like different things going and then I end up getting, you know, suffering from analysis paralysis. And so when I find that I commit myself fully to one particular thing, or maybe a couple of different things, you know, cause just to mix it up, I find yeah. that things really start to flow and things start to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Well, I, I think being purposeful and being intentional makes it easier for 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 you to succeed. And I um, and I also think that um, I think that um, there's a there's a lot of things that you learn in that process. I think I think being scattered is a part of having a, a, an important part of having a lot of interests um, because now I've seen you know now that I'm getting a little bit older. I've seen that my the career that I started out in and was absolutely sure that that was all that I was ever going to be, you know, end of story. Um, all this other stuff that I've done, interests I've had, loves I've had, stuff like that, have all been the path I wound up on. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, so that's one thing I've learned is like, um, is um, that I don't, I don't act so much in force, you know, like I don't force things, but boy, when I feel inspiration and momentum, man, I try to, I try to <laughs> set aside everything and let that take me. Um, when did you find music or when did music find you? Were you a kid in, in yeah. Austin when that yeah. happened? Yeah, I was, um, well, I always loved music, but and I actually I I wrote I wrote a little post on this uh, on Facebook the other day. I actually found the very first thing that inspired me as an artist. Uh, you know, so um, we can get to that later. Um, the question was music. Um, I I love music. Um, I, you know, we moved to Austin during the time of that cosmic cowboy thing with Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, and yeah. my dad was a cop um, and a criminal. And, uh, ah. and, uh, 
And that's why we wound up moving to Austin. That's, there's a lot, a lot of stories here. So um, I was 12, 11, 12, maybe. I was living with my dad. Um, I was interested in, I think I wanted a guitar. I can't exactly remember how it all panned out. I remember being obsessed with, with all that cosmic cowboy music. It really spoke to my soul. And I know I wanted a guitar and my dad got one at some pawn shop. It was a total piece of shit. And he gave it to me on Christmas, I think, when I was 12 or 13. And he spent the next 20 years trying to discourage me from playing it. Uh, but he got me lessons. There was a guy that he uh, worked at the hospital uh, that he uh, was stationed at. And that guy gave me like three lessons. And, and then I stopped living with my dad. But within three years, I was a gigging musician. Like I was out professionally making money still in high school for a little while longer. So that's kind of how it came. I th so the way music came to me is I remember listening to some music, but my parents had a lot of those uh, just like really, they didn't have a lot of taste in music. I found out later my dad wanted to be a singer songwriter and was into poetry and stuff like that, but he would never allow himself to do it. And I get that too. Um, yeah, but their their record collection sucked. It was like <laughs> it was like Andy Williams and oh boy, Lawrence mean, Welk. <laughs> it was almost, you know, I mean, for for a guy who was like such a criminal, like such a cool guy, he had some really shitty music going on. And he was, and that's the thing, being being a cop and a criminal, he was never like I I would ask my dad like, were you more into the Beatles or the Rolling Stones? And he goes, I hated those hippies. I was into the Beach Boys, and I was like. Oh, wow. I never even thought that was a, one of the lineations that, that you could have at that period of time. Who knew this was a thing? Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, so I think the coolest record my dad had was Don McLean, American Pie. Yep. And, he, and, he, and then uh, Jim Croce, uh, you know, and, and um, my dad wanted to be one of those guys, mm. you know, one of those kind of tortured singer songwriter guys and um I, apparently my mom found some some poetry that he had written at some point in time i've never seen it um but apparently he had some aspirations and of course his own you know his own bullshit he you know he used to discourage me the whole fucking time i was trying to play music and cuffs right so here yo oh, absolutely so this oh yeah you should you should yeah, if you, if you uh, uh when you listen I, to this episode you know yeah i did some guessing I do a little bit of guessing. <laughs> but, but, but it's interesting that he, the frustrated artist, the frustrated creative, and he's dissuading you from the very thing that you want to do. I have the yeah. irony of that. You know, instead of being, oh, yes, son, here, have a guitar, have some lessons, learn yeah. stuff, you know, come to full bloom in your, in your musical interest that he was actually um, more of an obstructionist than a, yeah. than a helper. Yeah, I th I think I think he was just playing out his own thing because I I think he also wanted to do those things and he couldn't allow himself to do it for whatever reason, and um, I mean the thing I had the most is is you know you 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 know you got to earn a job you have, you got to earn a living you're not gonna make a living and you know be able to support a family and do all that stuff, 
playing music. And, you know, and as it turns out, um, I, I didn't, I mean, that's what, that became my reality because that's what I was reinforced with, you know? And so I could, I could barely ever make a living because I believed that that's how it was, you know? And I didn't ever raise a family, you know, and, and for a number of reasons, you know, and, and uh, you know, one of them, oh, uh, one of my little hummingbirds came up to say hi. Outside. Oh, that's right. You've got a whole family of hummingbirds coming around. I used to. I, I got these two little jerk-ass uh, brothers, I think, hummingbirds, and they just fight all fucking day. <laughs> oh, and they're fighting each other all day, and they've run off. I had a family of like 10 or 12 hummingbirds. Um, that I, you know, I got a feeder and I would watch them and, and they fly up. I think there's just the one left. The others have all have all left because of these two shitheads. Mm. And I've tried They're to get rid of them. Huh? They're territorial. Yeah, They're very territorial. Yeah, and so, but there's this one who still sticks around for me. So, but I took the feeders down. I took my feeder down for over a week thinking, you know, I'll get them to leave, right? And they have made a nest, like, 10 or 15 feet away in a palm tree. So they ain't going anywhere. So now I'm just like, okay, well, I'll just feed these assholes and hope a cat gets them or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get some cool birds back. But I, this one little guy just popped up again to, to tell me he's here. So, uh, so. bringers of good, all good things. Um, but, oh, so tell me about uh, the Dell Dragons. Did they come when uh, you in how how old were you when that when that happened? Well, Dell Dragons was um, kind of like right in the middle of my music career. Um, that I started like um, I you know, and this has actually been coming up a lot lately. It's become I've been looking a lot at my um, association. Uh, with race, you know, when, when the protests started happening and all that stuff, um, you know, it, I really had to kind of review, like, what is my history? And, you know, my history was when I was around the time that I got that guitar and lived with my dad and really saw how my dad was, which was stone cold racist, unapologetic, un, unfettered racist flat out and the shit that he would say to me was unbelievable and unacceptable and as much as I wanted to please him I just I decided no no way this hatred this darkness will not have a place in my heart and um and so you know I mean I was I was in high school at that point I was playing sports with guys of all races and they were all my friends and it's like well yeah we're different but we're not better than each other and you know my best friend when i lived with my dad in high school um i lived with him for a year a year a year and a half in high school my best friend's father was like the grand dragon of this uh, this little locale of the clan. Mm -hmm. And my friend was a great, sweet guy too, but he would say racist shit. And I was like, no, like, no. no. And, um, and I, you know, I got to their house 
and see, like the father had these Nazi flags and um, just all this insane fucking memorabilia of Nazi stuff and Klan stuff and just the darkest fucking feeling um, being in that house. I didn't like going in that house. Interestingly enough, I, you know, my friend was, he was a softy like me. It was the thing, it was the thing that we really connected on. We're still friends on Facebook and he still is not very woke, mm -hmm. but he is kind of, mm -hmm. and um, you know, uh, he's, he's on that fence that it's easy for an older white male to be on mm -hmm. if you don't challenge yourself. And I think he challenges himself a little. Anyway, as around that time that I was like, no, I will not succumb to this indoctrination. Right. Like I am, because I look at my friends and my black friends and my Mexican friends and my white friends, they're all different, but they're all my friends and they're all humans. And we all have, we're all, you know, we have our difficulties in our own ways and we have our differences and shit like that. Nobody's better than anybody else. Right. And, um, and I was like, I'm, I'm not gonna buy into that. And so when I started playing music, um, fortunately, I was interested in everything. And I, I was immersed by, you know, as, as limited as Austin's cultural diversity is, there were some diverse characters. Like one of my very first bands was a Soka and Calypso band. Uh, these two guys from Trinidad and Tobago, Ricky and Leroy, and uh, they were called Steel Power. And, uh, like the steel and drums. Steel drums. They played steel drums and they were never fucking in tune. And um, the, uh, oh, and the, I replaced the bass player. Um, shit, I can't, Russell. His name was Russell. He was 6'2. He was the biggest, meanest looking black dude you ever seen. And he hated me for taking his gig. And the reason I took his gig was because he was so busy. He started a body shop in Austin. And he got so busy with his work and paying his bills and all that shit, keeping his shop open that he couldn't do the gig. And I got the, the gig and he hated me and he scared me. Like he would intimidate, he'd come out to the gigs, you know, sometimes and just totally intimidate me. But then he just kind of fell, he got a soft spot for me, he kind of fell in love with me. And, uh, you know, and there would always be like the three of them, especially they would always be like, Oh, you, you crazy white boy, you crazy <laughs> white boy, you jumping around on stage. You, Joe, you run up to the front, you jump off the stage, you crazy white boy. And they love me though. So that Irish <laughs> charm, you got him with the Irish charm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was like, it was like, um, I, you know, and I would, you know, I tease him back. And, and, um, and so another guy that I was in, uh, in that band with, we had been in another band together. I can't remember if I got him the gig or if he got me the gig or I don't even know. But uh, so we would start making fun of them. You know, we'd make fun of their accent. And, uh, and, uh, and you know, we could, every song was called, uh, this one called the uh, BB bomb. Um, there's this, this one's bum 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 bum. And uh, it's in this one in D and uh, <laughs> you go, man, stop, 
be quiet, crazy white boy. You play now, you know. So we'd, we'd mess with each other, but it was all like it was good natured, you know. And, and um, uh, I played, um, I played with um, some guys. There's a band called um, um, Fastball. Um, they had a song called The Way that was a big hit. And um, the singer in that band, and I were in one of our very first bands together, digging in Austin. It was a band called Band from Hell, and uh, it was like this. Um, it was like the Ramones with Steve Vai on guitar. <laughs> right. And you know, we kind of had that look. It was like jeans and leather jackets and leather Converse, and um, and uh, a lot of hair. It was yeah. There's a lot of hair. It was like it was like right on the front edge of that hair metal thing. But we were like hair punk rock, and uh, w with a little with like the metal guitar play. It was like if you know if Johnny Ramone was Steve Vai. It was a, it it was actually a really cool thing. We and we were we 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 almost got um, like it, we played this the four three or four of the first five South by Southwest festivals. And I think the first or second one we played, we had the 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 head of A and R for like the top five major labels in the country were at our show. And like the um, this woman Karen Berg, who's the head of A and R at I think Warner Brothers, was at the monitor board, like just like poised, you know, waiting to talk to us, you know. And and um, and we collected half a dozen major label cards that night at South by Southwest. And being a drunk I was, I fucked up every single one of those opportunities. Um, and uh, but we had like this big fan deal. We we played at um at the new music seminar, which was like South by Southwest before South by Southwest was a thing. And uh, or, um we played that in New York City and we inspired uh, this all-girl band. We played at this club that had all-female employees. It was called the Lismar Lounge, and they had a punk band, and they named their punk band uh, after us. They were called the Cycle Sluts from Hell, and they were like, they were on MTV and shit. Like, wow, so, what year What year was this? Around? Uh, 87, I think, 80, 86, 87, 88, like in that period. We played... Uh, we played my very the very first time I ever played in New York City, which was and this was before Band from Hell. I played with a guy named Dino Lee, the King of White Trash, and uh, he was this six foot four guy with a ten inch pompadour, and he was he was a cross between um, he was a cross between James Brown and Screaming Jay Hawkins and and Dean Martin, he was a white, and the band was a cross between James Brown and Gwar. Like, it was, the, it was the craziest thing you've ever fucking seen. And this was a time when Stevie Ray Vaughan, the fabulous Thunderbirds, um, who else? Um, so after Christopher Cross, but these, they were the biggest bands in Austin and we would outdraw them. Like it was, you know, we we do a gig and there'd be two thousand people at wow. the gig, and there are these big theatrical productions with gore and smoke and porn. Like you know, like it was just it was insane. 
And the very first time I ever played in New York, we played at this club, The Limelight, which a lot of people are familiar with. And it was a, a, it was a, a huge church at 666th Avenue. And um, I, before we went on, back in the VIP lounge was uh, Steve Stevens the, you know, from yep. Billy Idol. And he played all the big solos on the Michael Jackson stuff. And then I'm on stage playing and there was like these three tiers in this church, you know, there was like everybody's dancing on the floor. And then the second was kind of like the VIP. And then the third floor had this VIP bar up there. And I looked up and I'm 19 years old in New York City the very first time on the very, my very first time playing in New York and Lemmy is watching me play bass. And I like, my fingers like just turned into like I couldn't play and uh because like Lemmy was watching me play um and so so I just had like immediately as soon as it's so and I was so I was in high school and sleeping through my classes all day and then out playing music in at night and and meeting and mingling with people from all over the world um, playing with people from all over the world, every every race and culture and religion and lack of religion, and, you know, and the thing that brought us together was music mm -hmm. and booze and cocaine. Yeah, <laughs> of course, there's always that, you know, yeah. <laughs> especially in the late 80s. Yeah. Oh, God. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and and all this is happening to you and you're and you're 19 years old and 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 really it's it's made possible thanks to the fact that you grew up in Austin because yeah. being the music hub that it was and having the diversity that it had saved you from the legacy of racism that yeah. was coming down through your family because of your experience. And I really think that that's, that's what does it. It's your personal experience that, that hones your views rather than what you're indoctrinated with because yeah. if, if you, what your experience if your experience counters what you've been indoctrinated with, then you you're you're you have a much greater chance of escaping all of that bullshit. I yeah, I mean, I I agree to an extent, but that wasn't my experience. My experience was I found it so distasteful that I had to create my own experience, mm -hmm. and um and so uh, um I I. I, I aimed myself away yeah. from what I didn't want and found myself in what I did want. But interestingly, so, there was something in you innately that allowed you to recognize this is wrong. Yeah. This kind of talk, this kind of behavior is wrong. This yeah. clan stuff is, is, is an abomination. That was just ugh, something yeah. in you. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I could, yeah, I just couldn't imagine, like, you know, I mean, because, uh, and especially like in Bastrop, some of my friends, some of my black friends were, I mean, they were literally living in tar paper shacks. They were like, this was like real honest to God poverty where like, and, and I was like, how, how and why could you hate my friend? Like one of my, <laughs> one of my best football buddies was this guy named T-Bone and he was so badass. And I can't even remember his real name, but he was, he was just T-Bone. And he was so fucking funny and he was so sweet and always on 
And now I know the reason why he's, he was always on like that and always laughing and always, because if he didn't laugh, it would have eaten him alive, you know? Yeah. But he was a kid who like, he what? I don't think he was getting enough to eat, you know? And, and, um, and he didn't, he didn't have the stuff and the opportunities that I had. And, and, um, and I was like, how can you shit on somebody like that? How can you say that that person is inferior when they're not getting the chance that you have, you know, even when I couldn't be like, well, the reason they're not getting the chance that you have is because of you, mm -hmm. right? Like, even without that, even before I, I developed that awareness of it, I was just like, how can you hate on somebody who doesn't have what you have? Well, the other thing that's interesting about a person like your friend T-Bone is that this is a person who made the conscious choice to find humor and joy in life, despite his yeah. circumstances. Yeah. Whereas other people will make the other choice, which is yeah. to become embittered and, and yeah. understandably so. Yeah. But he, he made that choice to go the other way. Yeah. And I'm sure his life is a lot better for it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's hard to say. I think, you know, I think a lot of it is what you, what you choose to do. And I've also seen that, you know, there's like certain things in you that are maybe not ingrained. Like I wasn't, I wasn't, I mean, I'm fortunate. I have the sweetest mother in the whole world. Like how she ever got together with my dad, I will never fucking understand what well, she was young and yeah. he was aggressive and yeah. um but like but like i fortunately i have that um side of me as well but i didn't i didn't have anybody teaching me how to stand up for myself mm -hmm. i didn't have anybody teaching me to make my own decisions and choose and i'm not even so sure that that was a decision that i made consciously I feel like there's something inside of me that makes me what I am. Because I can look and I can go, okay, well, I make these choices or I have these preferences or I did this or I did that. But how did that really happen? And I, honestly, I can't claim, I don't, I can't claim 100% um, um, autonomy. Like, I think there's, I think there's something, innate to me and to other people to all of us that um no matter what you choose to be or how you choose to be there's something inside you that you are and that's and that's your truth you mm. know and i think you can improve on it or or choose not to or you can <laughs> you can go the other direction if you want to do that but i think that's i think there's stuff in us and i don't think that all of us are bright shiny you know naturally positive thing i think some of us are naturally dark and um brooding and and uh and i don't i actually i don't have a judgment on that you know right like, you know i don't think it makes you more prone to fail yeah, it's interesting. I, today I was I was watching a little bit of an old interview with um, the wonderful Billy Connolly. Oh yeah. As we oh, just thinking about him, you know, I mean, yeah. Uh, 
But he, I did not know that he actually had come from some major abuse from his father, not just physical, but also sexual. And um, he had this really pretty horrendous childhood. But what's interesting is the way that he talks about his childhood, you know, he grew up uh, very poor. And, but that was not, of course, the thing that was bad. He said, he said, you don't know any different when you're in that environment and you have your friends and you have your life. And, oh, it's great. Everything's, you know, but, but it's the, but the, the abuse and how he dealt with it was to make people laugh. Yep. To take people to, 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 to make music, of course, became a banjo player, <laughs> as you know, but, um, but, but to make people pretty, laugh. Pretty What's that? He's such a great comic. Oh God, he's brilliant. There's there's this bit that um, that I every so often I put it up on Facebook and fucking Facebook and its algorithms. Very often a lot of people don't see it, but it's the one about potatoes of the night. <laughs> this bit that he goes to a restaurant with his daughter, and um, and they're in Ireland and they're going down the the list and it says potatoes of the night and you have to watch the the thing and find it on on YouTube. But but just the the way that he that he sees things is just a little bit slanted and and just and of course it's it's great delivered in a Glaswegian accent as well. But yeah. there's something so joyful about him and everything, you know, every story that I've heard about him or interview that I've seen, he has this great um, benevolence of spirit. Yeah. And it's the soul and, of a poet. He absolutely, yeah. And part of that is being a Scot, you know, Robbie Burns, you know, I mean, definitely they have, they have that, you know, the Scots and the Irish definitely have their, their literature and their music. And the, these are, these are people who are word obsessed. You yeah. Um, you could argue that the English are similar in that way, but I think it's the, it's the, um, the Celtic thing, the Scots yep. and the Irish and the Welsh. Let's not forget the Welsh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, I think I'm half Welsh. Welsh. Well, I'm uh, I'm Welsh Irish. Yeah. My mother's my mother's parents were um, Welsh and Irish from West Virginia. So, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm coal trash that comes from steel trash, or I'm steel trash that comes from coal trash. You know. But you know what's interesting about about the about the coal mines and I, I was i was listening to this interview with with richard burton of course one of the most famous welshmen anywhere but he was talking about how the coal miners saw themselves as princes of the underground they mm. were the elite wow. of the working class and they had kind of a swagger to them and it was there's a real pride of being a coal miner because especially you know your father went down the mine your grandfather went down the mine you know, and so nowadays you know, people are, are denied that because things are changing. But, um, but that's interesting that you come from West Virginia coal country and the same. Oh, this is a this is a piece of um, of of strange arcane knowledge. The seam that goes from northern Spain goes up through the UK, down through Wales, goes under the Atlantic, comes up in Pennsylvania, West Virginia, all that. It's the same coal seam. Wow. The huh. same thing. And then he said, if you took a Welsh miner and if you put him in Pennsylvania or West Virginia, he would recognize the coal face because it looks the same. Well, I guess they did, at least in the case of my family. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. And then, um, so your mom, so did she have any creative ambitions herself or was she just a gentle spirit mom raising you or what did, what did she do? What's her story? So she was a nurse. She was a career nurse. And um, so she had, and that was, that was a part of her like spiritual cosmic identity was a caretaker, you know. Um, I know now that um, she painted for a long time uh, and I never saw her do that. She had a, a series of strokes over the, my, and my mother, by the way, this sweetest person, everybody who's, you know, who's ever met her, spent any time with her say, She's the sweetest person she's ever they've ever met. Mm -hmm. And she is also the most resilient, amazing person. I, and I joke about it um, with her that uh, she has been in um, like life-threatening situations over and over and over and over, like lost count. Like she was in a head-on collision with my stepfather when I was uh, 14 maybe she lived through that she's got um, you know broken uh, uh, um, broken Excuse neck me. and all that so yeah and and, uh, and then that impeded the blood flow into her brain she started having strokes and, and uh, brain atrophy she's lost her hearing she's had cancer five or six times lupus um, like she's like you and the, the thing is is like you can't kill her like I'm every you know so every time my mom goes you know um I I've been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and I was like well poor Alzheimer's because it's about to get its ass kicked you know <laughs> so, so. how old is she now uh let's see she's uh 75 mm -hmm. and uh yeah and she so she had this series of strokes and um about 10 years ago, she started painting again. And I was like, well, when did you paint the first time? And she goes, well, I don't remember most of whatever happened, but um, I, think I, I think I used to paint. And, um, and so she started painting these beautiful, um, these beautiful watercolors. And, and um, so it's, that's really awesome that she's, that she's got a creative thing. And same token, like she, uh, and my stepfather, my stepfather played, he was, he's an attorney. Um, he's first generation American. His parents came over from, uh, um, from, I don't know what part of Mexico, but they, they settled in Harlingen and had him. Uh, his father was a successful, like private banker. Like he was just, he just opened his own little bank and that's what he did. And, and, um, and my stepfather, uh, you know, because of uh, my step-grandfather, got to go through UT uh, law school. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, and so, um, but, and he played sax. And apparently he was good. Like, um, and, uh, but he, again, he followed law instead mm -hmm. of, so I, I just, I had my, my legacy was, I was, if, the only thing I ever was, was discouraged. Like, you know, like my, my stepfather was like one of those, you know, you got to get a job, be a provider, you know, guys you know, screwing around playing music. And we did not get along for a really, really long time. And we do now. Um, and my mom, 
I, she just didn't know how to, like, the stuff I was doing was so insane. Dino Lee, the keg of white trash, banned from hell. Uh, I, and I realized I never answered the Dell Dragons question. But, um, but, like, that kind of stuff, she was like, I don't think she could, in good conscience, encourage me <laughs> to do that stuff. Because I was drinking and drugging myself to death, and she was in right. total denial about it. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I, I got no encouragement whatsoever at home to do it. And, and it's been until all the last 10 years, it's been really the thing that's always been my thing. Like I get a little successful and knock myself down, get a little successful and knock myself down. And it's all because I never knew like encouragement. Like I never, cause I always thought like I'm not supposed to succeed. Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, I'm supposed to be doing something else. Like I, so I would be on stage playing to thousands of people and, uh, you know, and, and like in another world and then boom, you're not supposed to be here. What the fuck are you doing here? Mm -hmm. And uh, like, you know, all that stuff. So I've had to, to deal with all of that stuff. And fortunately I've found uh, some great tools and stuff like that. So, um, I came from, I think I came from people who wanted to be creative and would not allow that. Interesting. And then yeah. you, and then you, you got sober at some point. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Uh, when I was 22. Mm. Now you're really yeah. lucky that it happened early on and that you learned these tools for life really, because yeah. yeah. that's, that's what it is. Yeah. And, uh, and then you learn that, oh, um, uh, genetics are not destiny. <laughs> yeah. Choice. Yeah. And um, and then it, it sets you on a different on a different path of awareness. Yeah. Yeah. I you know I I realize as 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 loving as my mother was you know and as much as I looked up to I don't I'd love my dad you know I don't know that I looked up to him. The older, the older and more mature I've gotten, the less I respect him. But, um, but like I love, I've always loved him. And what I realized at some point in time was like, I don't have any tools. Like I have, I have no tools. Like, and you know, but that's what I've really, what I learned in that is like, okay, well, my dad's, a, you know, an alcoholic, racist misogynist, you know, uh, uh, womanizer. And, and so he did teach me plenty. Like I learned all that stuff, <laughs> but like, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't going to sit down and like, give me tools. Here's how you do this and this because he didn't have them. Right. And my, and my mom was, you know, was the, you know, like the, the codependent and she had her own stuff to deal with, you know, and there was, I mean, I had, I got consequences. I got discipline. I got, you know, it wasn't that I never got, but you know, nobody ever sat me down with a checkbook and said, here's how you do this. Here's what you do with money. Here's how you handle people. Here's, you know, like when I would get in trouble at school or I would have problems or something like that. I can't recall ever going, well, look, here's how you deal with this, you know? Like, and I'm not saying it didn't happen but it didn't stick. <laughs> so uh, the great thing was, you know, the great thing was that at some point in time, 
I realized that I never had the tools and I had started developing them. You know, and the downside is, is it took me a really long time to develop those tools, you know, and I, I, I feel like in a lot of ways that I was like a, like a like a wild ape wearing people clothes you know it was getting away with it you know like they all think i'm a person and here i am a jungle boy you know so yeah i i sobriety was uh i I wasn't gonna i was very clear that i would never see the age of 25. that was like that's old why would i even want to be 25. yeah and also the way I partied was I um, I literally would not have lived nine more months doing what I was doing and and um, uh, I, you know so I think about it as like I like to think of I, I had this fantasy that I was going to be Sid Vicious you know or Johnny Thunders or someone like that you know it's like oh he died too young. But the fact of the matter is, is I was not Johnny Thunders or Sid Vicious. I was a fucking nobody. I was a, I was a never had been. And so it would have been, oh, it's a shame. Troy Dillinger died so young. And people were going, who? And he's just dead. <laughs> yeah. Who? Oh, he could, he could. No, trust me. He could, he was like, he was going to be like Sid Vicious or John. No, he was gone you know i was i had achieved nothing i'd accomplished nothing except a few good gigs you know so, so what was the moment then when you realized oh fuck <laughs> i have to i gotta turn the ship around oh i have those every five years <laughs> <laughs> but the biggie when you were 22 yeah, though yeah the, that was one of the first ones even that wasn't the first one um i um well, I had been, at that time, I think I had been like nonstop, like loaded 24-7 for almost two years. Mm. Like I really, people still tell me stuff from that period of time. Uh, six or seven years ago, I was uh, this friend of mine who was, he was married to one of the Dixie Chicks and he was a big country artist himself. and. Um, uh, my old guitar player was playing with him, had been touring with him for years. And I was on their bus one time and I hear from the back, is that Troy Dillinger out there? And, yeah. He goes, come back here. And uh, this guy's nickname was Blow Cephas. And I was like, oh boy. And uh, so I go back there and I was, you know, I was like, you know, and people like offering me drugs. They, they want me to party with them because they usually think I'm loaded. Like I, I've mm -hmm. learned how to have fun without getting loaded. But he goes, man, Troy, you remember this one time, man, we had, you, you had this party. You used to always have this party. Like you would go, like all of Sixth Street would go to your house afterwards. I was like, yeah, I, I, I've heard. <laughs> he goes, man, this one time we, we went out, we had been at this party out of Lake Travis, the famous Lake Travis. Mm -hmm. And uh, man, we had these, we grabbed these uh, tombstones that they used in the foundation of this pier and beam house. They didn't have enough money to pour concrete piers in it. So they used these tombstones and we threw three of them in the back of my pickup truck and we left them in your living room. And, uh, 
And I was like, oh, you're the son of a bitch who did that. And it was this huge story. Like I came to one afternoon and I went in my living room and there was these three Confederate era tombstones in my living room, like lined up, like, you know, like it was a burial ground. And I was like, what the fuck? It took two of us and a wheelbarrow to get them out of the house. And then at first I put them right by my front door, you know, and that was like a little too close and too creepy. So I lived in this lot that was like a really long lot and the end of it was on a main street. So I just took them down and put them under this little scrub oak tree. And it was like these three Confederate tombstones under a scrub oak. It was like the sad, like a Charlie Brown's scrub oak. And so it just looked like this Confederate memorial, you know? And I never, (laughs) yeah, like people would pull over and take pictures and shit like that. And then, um, you know, I moved out of that place years later and I got this frantic call from the guy that used to be my landlord and I thought he hated me because I you know my rent was my part of the rent was $200 every month Uh, and it was cheaper than that when I moved in and I never had it you know like I never and I think I left him left that place owned him two or three months so I was like this guy hates me And, and I was like hey I'm glad you called me because I owe you money and I need to pay you back. You're on my list of people, but here you are. And so I can give you 15 bucks a month. It's, he goes, listen, I will call it even. And I need you to write and have notarized a statement of how those tombstones got in my fucking yard because I can't sell my fucking house because they have zoned it um, a historical uh, uh, property oh, no. because they think that there are three Confederate soldiers buried under that scrub oak tree and you have to give me an affidavit saying that it's just tombstone so I can sell that fucking place. So, uh, so yeah, stuff like that was my, that was my life uh, during that period of time. Like I wasn't, and I had, I had no idea about any of that stuff, you know, until people told me later after the fact. Mm-hmm. And so. then, and then you, beyond the music thing, as you got older, you you got into like obviously you supported yourself. You had a marketing firm or something, didn't you? Uh, yeah, right. I um, I at um. Before, before like everybody had to do DIY, mm-hmm. you know, like. By the by, the mid '90s, I realized. Okay, I looked around. I saw some musicians that were um, promoting themselves, and um, and they had they're doing a good job at it. And I was like, oh, well, if I can learn how to do that kind of promotion, then I can promote my music, and I won't have to hire the people that a lot of these people can afford to hire, and that'll mm. just be like a little edge up I can get. So. I started learning how to promote my own stuff, do my own press releases. I, I, a friend of mine was a, um, a scientist at a, um, a bio, oh, what was it? It wasn't biochemistry. It was like a, a, a biogenetics lab. Mm-hmm. And so they had some of the first desktop computers, like Windows style. Like, I think I got into Windows in 
like version three or something. I remember, so, but, uh, so he sold me a computer on payments. And so I learned, and uh, he had a copy of Photoshop three. Oh and, yeah, so you're doing your little <laughs> graphic design thing. Yeah, with your so I'm doing, yeah, I was doing graphic design and, and posters and all that. And then I started doing like some other people started coming to me going, hey, can you do me a press kit? Can you make me some flyers? And so I started doing that for other people. And then I started learning how to do websites when that came out. And, um, and then, um, so little by little, because I was hustling my own music, I developed skills that I was able to do for other people. And so that turned into kind of my own uh, design and marketing firm. And because, because I, would look around and see what people were doing in terms of marketing and stuff like that. How just sleazy. It was like, that was like the new used car salesperson. It was yeah. like web designers and marketing and all that shit. So I just developed this thing that, and I used to, my company used to be called, I hate marketing. <laughs> and, um, you know, like it was pretty good, pretty negative. And um, uh, later I turned it into when guerrilla marketing became a thing, I, I changed the name to Dylan Gorilla. And so it was like, a, you know, me and a gorilla. And that was kind of the, the logo was a gorilla. So, um, so necessity yeah. became the mother of your livelihood. Yeah, it did. It did. Well, and then it's like so many things in my life where it turned around and bit me in the ass, you know, because like, uh, you know, it's like the worst thing I ever learned to do in my life was how to fix a car and swing a hammer and build shit. Because now I will try to do that shit. I will waste all of my time instead of going to pay somebody else to do that shit and do it better than me and do it, you know. So, um, and then at some point in time, because I hated marketing so much and because I had like an eye for branding and shit like that, and around the time where I did my first film project, and we'll, I'm jumping ahead, but um, there was this brand new TV network that had had that was Cartoon Network after like 10 o'clock at night, and they showed all this crazy animation stuff that was not for kids, you know, <laughs> very and much it, not for kids. Yeah, it was it was animation. It was not for kids and Cartoon Network. And one of the, the, the great things that they had was they had repurposed all these old 60s Hanna-Barbera cartoons and they turned, a they made a talk show out of Space Ghost. And, and, you know, and Space Ghost Coast to Coast is the thing. And I'm watching this and I was like, this is brilliant. This is genius. And then it became this really popular thing. And on Sunday nights, um, that was the big adult swim block. It was just one, you know, one night a week was like after nine o'clock was all this flagship animation for adults. They actually brought family guy back out of cancellation. And, um, and I thought, well, this stuff is brilliant. And I wanted to do a weekly gig uh, for my band. Like everybody who was, having any success musically in Austin had a weekly residency and every night of the week was taken up except Sunday night, which was a band I used to be in, but they were like kind of earlier, like seven to 10. 
and it was all kind of older anyway. And I was like, well, I could do something then, but all those people are home watching Adult Swim. Anybody who would come out would be home watching Adult Swim. And because I had done all these screening events for my first film, I had already pieced together these multimedia events with my band playing and then showing this short film project on a huge screen after the band played and it was sponsored by local businesses and there's food and drinks and all this great stuff. And I was like, well, if I just take my film festival out and I plug Adult Swim in, then I can do music and then Adult Swim on a huge screen on Sunday night, I can get the beer donated. We did it as a fundraiser for the, um, the, the only 24 hour a day local music network, which is the awesome music network. Um, I got 503C uh, designation and, and that's how I made my first film uh, project as well. So this event came out of it and within a month, you know, within three or four Sundays, it was 250 people there every Sunday night, five bucks. And my next door neighbor was like, this is great. He went out and bought a 21 foot above ground pool. So you had like 250 really cool people like drinking beer, swimming, music. I was putting stand up comedy and burlesque and I started hosting this game show and and then the, the cartoons up there. It was it was a like real phenomenon. And it was in the cool area of town. And, um, and then uh, I got a cease and desist from the network. Like, it was so popular that the network sent me a cease and desist. And I was like, holy shit. And, um, and then what I later learned is that this is how corporations steal intellectual property. And so I never signed it. Oh, in three years, I never signed it. But what I did was I created the experiential marketing division of Adult Swim, and they stole it. <laughs> oh, man. And uh, I mean, it was worth millions and millions and millions of dollars. And um, uh, but that was like, that was how my all the marketing stuff that I done it, it, it made national news and stuff and, and um, uh, turn around bit me in the ass and millions of dollars that I, you know it did make millions of dollars just not for me so and and all the and and, it, and all this from the impetus to support the local music scene and keep austin weird at the same time and and this happens and then is this when you started thinking i think i want to go to la and and do the acting thing mm -mm. No. no, not yet. <laughs> not yet. No, not yet. I had um, like I had started doing like extra work in the 90s, you know, just as because they were shooting some stuff in Austin. And I wound up gotten, getting featured for a few things. I was, you know, got, um, got like a featured bid in um, uh, this movie called American Outlaws with Colin Farrell and Kathy Bates and uh, uh, Timothy Dalton and, you know, like and and then I, I would get roles in other things because I was, you know, I, I kind of had this kind of weird, you know, like Dennis Hopper kind of thing that, you know, like, uh, and so, and I was fun. I was a musician, all that stuff. So I got roles and then I started getting really interested in production. And then uh, I did that, my first film project, which was, I did something that 
I didn't know was impossible. So I did something that was impossible that nobody had ever done. And, um, and I won all these awards. And suddenly my first project was like this award-winning thing that put me on the map. And I already had a little bit of notoriety. I rolled that into Adult Swim. I got fucked royally on that deal. And I was like, well, you know what? I'll do my own fucking television show. And um, so I took that Sunday event and I turned it into a monthly event uh, that was recorded for television. So, and that became uh, the Austin Variety Show. It, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so we started, we started shooting it in the summer of 2009. And um, we had our broadcast premiere in Austin in January of 2010. We were on uh, the NBC affiliate there for three years. Um, and it was basically, it was stand-up comedy, burlesque, music, and a game show that I hosted. And um, little by little, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. We started getting like touring comics. Uh, Mark Marin did it once. And, um, and then uh, Austin Music that was like had international um, stuff. So it got so big that I couldn't continue doing it in the kind of like low budget fly by night way I was doing it. I owed everybody in town two or 300 bucks. And I was like, and if we had one show that tanked financially, I mean, every show is popular, but if, it, if, if we didn't sell enough tickets or something like that, I would have to eat peanut butter for a month. Mm. You know? And so I was like, okay, this has to be more stable because I have to, I can't be homeless and do all this stuff. Yeah, no, it's not advisable. So, <laughs> So I had, I, it was, the show was popular. It was, you know, um, it had notoriety. We had a 10,000 square foot production facility that we got for next to nothing. Um, and um, I put together this like investor plan to where I could take it for uh, about two, two and a half million bucks and create a cross between Austin city limits and their production facility mm -hmm. and this, a comedic institution called Esther's Follies that had its own venue, like 150, 200 seat venue, and was a combination of that. That also had a Netflix back end where we would shoot every show we did. You could have a membership to the website and watch any show we ever did. You could buy tickets to watch it live stream. So it, it was this thing that had 10 different income streams you know, booze, tickets, online tickets, back end, um, you know, uh, production facility, had all this stuff. And nobody in Austin went, yeah, I'll invest in that. Nobody. They couldn't because it wasn't, it wasn't tech or real estate. And so nobody was, nobody could, with money, could wrap their heads around it. Like out here, I could have sold it 10 times over. I've got a hold on the game show portion of it. And so I just, I finally, I went around Austin for two years trying to get investors for this thing. And I finally got, I ran out of resources. I still owed everybody in town two or 300 bucks. I, you know, and, but then I was behind on my own rent because I wasn't in production of the show. I wasn't doing all that shit. And I was finally like, I can't, 
I can't do what I love to do and benefit the town that I love. And I, what do I do? And I finally succumbed to the thing I've been avoiding for 20 years, which is coming out to LA. Mm -hmm. And um, so I sold everything that wouldn't fit into my SUV and, uh, and moved out here in January of 2017. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I re and I remember the story when you went up first time at Clown House and you talked about that, about coming out to, coming out to the, uh, the den of iniquity that is Los Angeles. Yeah. But you've, you've and working, that's the amazing thing. You've been doing comedy, yeah. you've been doing TV, you've been doing films. Actually, when we saw Ford versus Ferrari, in <laughs> credits and John Brunthal and like I grabbed Brad and I'm like there's Troy <laughs> so great like cool. anything there you are it was so awesome to see that it was so cool because when it came out you know for about a month there my phone was just blowing up like did I just see yeah we saw you know and then I was like that was so great and then it came out on HBO again like during the the shutdown and a whole new wave of people. We do. We just saw you on HBO. So yeah, it's been really cool. I didn't, you know, I honestly, I didn't think I was going to come out here and be an actor. I thought I was going to come out here and and sell my game show because I know it's a good concept, um, and I knew it would either happen like that or it might take a little while. And but I knew if I was doing stand up comedy, I might be able to, you know get a role on something else and so I just went to the next yeah. yeah yeah so I came out I was like I I gotta learn the lay of the land um I tried to get a day job I you know I had I got a credit card for twelve thousand dollars and um and somehow or other that lasted a year and a half like the, you know and um I, there's just enough like I would clean an empty apartment here I would, you know, do I, a, a buddy of mine needed a deck build on the back of his house and I knew how to swing a hammer and, oh. uh, you know, like just shit like that would happen, shit like that would happen. And, and, um, uh, and next thing you know, I was like, well, here's what I know. My whole entertainment career in Austin was because I went and did background on, you know, and I knew it was shitty work. I knew it was like, yeah, it's just sitting there, but it is amazing how demanding just fucking sitting there and it's never comfortable. It's never, so you got to sit eight hours and do nothing. And you know, you can't, you can't do anything because you don't have electricity to plug a computer mm -hmm. into or not dependably. You don't have, you know, you may or may not have internet access. You're probably going to be around a bunch of people who are doing it because they can't hold a fucking job in fast food. Like they don't have the ability to, you know, or they're, you know, like either they're a ridiculously failed wannabe actor or ridiculously failed wannabe human, or, you know, like it was like, it's just like, it's extra work is not fucking easy. It's not, no matter why you're doing it, it's not fucking easy. But I was like, you know what? That's how everything happened for me in Austin. I went and I did BG work and it sucked but everything happened for me. So I was like, fuck it, I'll do it here. And um, I've had so many people tell me, don't do background work. You know, I've had agents 
say, you know, don't do background work. And I was like, well, I'm going to. So why did you sign me? You know, like, if background work is so fucking horrible, why did you sign me? Because I'm going to do it. I got to have a day job. And, um, you know, and just like in Austin, background jobs would turn in, they pull me for a feature. Uh, every now and then I get a line. I would get, you know, and then I started going, how are you submitting for acting jobs? Because I knew I could act because of my TV show. I, I, I did, I, part, part of it turned into a scripted thing and I had to learn how to be a good actor. And I did, because it was my money. <laughs> so if I wasn't a good actor, I was fucking up my own, I was stealing from myself. And so I got to be like a good actor. And so I just started like, you know, submitting for this and that, and I would get this little job and that little job. And then, um, and so just little by little, it just kind of built and built and, um, you know, keeping a positive attitude knowing that I have the skills, I have the ability, and knowing, knowing that if I wanna do it, it will happen. Mm -hmm. it's just that universal law, if it's in my heart and I don't doubt it and I don't do anything to fuck it up, the nature of things is, is what I think becomes my reality. And but, yeah. I was gonna say the other thing is, is that you know, how you meet this person, that person, this door opens, this connection happens. Yep. And some of it also happens when you're, a, when you're a nice person, you're great to work with people like you. That, that is really important yep. because if you're not a pain in the ass, people are gonna wanna work with you. Yep. So I had a friend once say, never underestimate the power of nice. <laughs> ride the bus well, yeah. you're gonna be yep. asked to go on tour. Yeah, yep. Yeah, it's true. It's, it is, you know, I've had, I had a lot of problems with that. I, I was in, um, I, when I was out on tour, one of the reasons I stopped touring as a musician was I had a really bad rollover accident and I had a closed head injury and my personality changed for five, six, seven years. Um, I got really negative, um, really um, emotional, like really angry. And um, all of my, all of my ego stuff totally amplified and um I, I really became a nightmare and it was it was part of why i started have to, having to look at what else i could do is because i kind of ruined my career in music because of my head injury like and that's a convenient <laughs> it's a convenient excuse right sorry it's a head injury you guys but um but what I realized as, as I started to heal, like as my personality started to change back, I was like, wait, who have I been for the last six or seven years? Like, and then I was like, oh, oh, like, yeah, I've got an ego, but not like, like that stuff I was doing was like, I, I had no filter, I had no impulse control. I had no, like all that shit I did was because I was head injured. Mm. And, and like, and it's not, it's not stuff that I necessarily want to like do now. I don't want to act like that. I don't, I don't yeah. feel like that. So um, th that was like a real, that was a real eye opener. <laughs> and did you know when that was going on? Did you feel during the head injury years? Did you, did, were you aware that things were off or were you just in it? And then as you started to come out of it, that's when you became aware and you're like, I, I knew, I knew I had a head injury right. and I knew, um, 
I didn't, I, but I did, I wasn't exactly sure why any of that, I mean, it was just kind of like, it was an altered reality, you know, like I had, um, just prior to the accident, I had, I had been through this really kind of bummer breakup, like the, the most significant relationship I'd ever had as an adult ended and it ended like, it ended not right. It wasn't like, yeah. a, it wasn't like a, an ending that you go, well, that's fair. You know, it was like, and so, heartbreak. yeah, it was, it was real heartbreaking let down. And like, I was a guy who was like, I was not going to get married until it was the right thing. And I, and I really invested myself in this relationship and, um, and it just ended so badly. And I was so disillusioned and I really kind of went on this tear, you know, like I was like, well, you know, you can't not, you can't hurt me. You know, I, you know, if if I don't feel anything, you can't break my heart, you know? And, uh, exactly. Yeah. So I, I went on this, this kind of tear where I was like, you know what? I'm invincible and, um, and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do things for me. And then I had that head injury and then I, I had no like control over it. Like, um, uh, and then things really got bad and they really got weird. So, you know, Wow. But you yeah. came out of that. Yes. Thank yeah. You. <laughs> like, I still, I mean, I still, it's been, you know, almost 20 years and I still am willing to make apologies and have to occasionally make apologies for how I acted in, in the aughts, you know, for mm-hmm. in the two thousands, like from 2000 to 2010, like my behavior was like, I, I went back and cleaned up as many messes as I could. There's still some I stumble onto and, mm-hmm. you know. Kind of making your amends. Yeah. For that time. Yeah. The odd aughts. Yeah, it's like, well, you know, there's always everything, you know. And then there was, a, you know, when I developed, when I really developed ambition, like around 2010, um, you know, around well, like 2008, 2009, uh, around the time I hit 40, I was like, shit, I'd better pick something and, and do it. And um, pick a lane. Yeah. Yeah. It was like I the day I woke up on my 40th birthday, the day I woke up, I I had this existential meltdown. And it wasn't intellectual, it was like a spiritual, like, here is the first 40 years of my life, and what are they equal? Ooh, this isn't good. Yeah. Like, and, and what about the next 40? What are they going to equal? Right. And, uh, and then I was like, I don't know. Like, you know, and, and um, that was like a very, very big thing. And then I developed, uh, you know, ambition. And then I had a whole new set of circumstances for my weak character to show itself in, you know, like everything. You know, it's pretty easy to good, be a good person when you're not doing shit. You know, like when I'm not when I'm not out trying to do anything and we're all just fucking plugging away and in my own little corner, you don't have to be that good a person because you don't affect that many people. Well, and also you're not you don't have these stresses uh, uh, pressing in on you. Well, yep. you're in a more yep. rarefied environment, so it's easy. It's easier. You yeah, know, you're kind of protected, you know. But when you get out there and it's like, ah, things yeah. are happening yeah so in other words y'all had a midlife crisis (laughs) i I suppose i mean 
I think, well, the, fa the fact of the matter is, is this is a crisis I should have had in my, you know, 10 or 15 years earlier. I should have had, you know, I should well, have. It was a moment, it was a moment of recognition and awareness of yeah. uh, uh, something that I have a friend from Chicago who calls it the, uh, he said, you had a BGO. And what that is, is a blinding glimpse of the obvious. <laughs> I think I've right a BGO, blinding glimpse of the obvious, like, oh, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I got to, I really got to be Peter Pan for, you know, 25 years as a musician, you know? Uh -huh. it, was, it was great. All those musicians. Yeah. <laughs> the thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, and now I look back on it and there's like some of it, I'm like, oh, I did it right. You know, and th but there were certain things I, you know, that I didn't do, like build a foundation for my old age, you know, like, um, and that's not something that's, um, that's, I mean, that takes a long time, you know, and, uh, and the later you start, the longer it takes. Um, but yeah, I think, um, I think that um, when I really had, when I really had desires and drives, you know, then I really started seeing that it's easy to get it at odds with people. You know, it's it's easy for um, for clashes to take place when I want this and I want you know, like my um, my bad ideas about money and my my lack of education about business and about relationships about how to be an entrepreneur and a boss and a, you know like. I had major troubles with those for, you know, for years, you know, and, um, and there, and there's still messes I got, I still have to clean up, you know, as another reason I moved out here. Like I couldn't, I, I was, I wasn't making enough money in Austin to clean up all my, you know, to clean up my dad and stuff like that. So yeah, it was, it was, um, it was a really interesting, uh, it's been a really interesting trip in that way. Um, and, you know, but here's the, the interesting thing is I'm really, really grateful that I didn't get married because I was supposed to. Right. I've never been married. I still want to. I still want to do that. Mm -hmm. um, I got so lucky that I never had kids. Um, or if I did, their mothers were so intelligent as to not involve my immature ass in that kid's life. And to this day, they haven't, you know, yeah, yeah, they've been like, you know, so, you know, again, when my career like really, so I'll, I'll know my career is doing well because I'll find out if I have kids, you know, like <laughs> when I actually have something that's, that's worth uh, having to share uh, with my children, uh, I will find out if I have them. But I still, I am still into being a 65-year-old man that's trying to play ball with his kid, you know, like, so. I, well, I, and the thing is, is that um, I, I do believe that things happen in the time that they're supposed to happen. Yeah. And I think that there's something very sweet, speaking as a fellow late bloomer, yeah. um, there's something sweeter when things come later in life. Yeah. Um, I mean, in my situation, I think you may know this. Um, so Brad Watson, my fiance, Brad Watson of the Comedy Store, 
um, you know, we met in that back hallway. Yeah. <laughs> and I wasn't looking. Yeah. I was a pen. I'm like, oh, Jesus, musician, former comic, you know, <laughs> whatever, you know, whatever. And then, and then I got to know him and found out he was a really nice man, you yeah. know, and, uh, and I'm. I mean, that's a rarity in that building. I'm, and we're engaged yeah <laughs> yeah and uh but I, but it's so i think because we came to each other later both of us are just so freaking grateful for yeah. each other yeah and we and we value one another and respect one another and honor one another and it's because yeah. it's like wow i you know and and i think the secret is is being okay with being alone being yeah. able to say hey you know what if it doesn't happen it's a, I'm okay. I'm, I'm happy. I'm good yeah. in myself. I'm doing what I love to do. It'd be great yeah. to share it, but yeah. you know, if it doesn't happen. So when you get to that point and you're not looking and you're not grasping, then it's kind of that, that person, if they're meant to be there, they, they drift into your life. And it's kind of this amazing, amazing sort of thing. So the comedy store has a special place in my heart. Yeah, seriously. You know, so many things have happened in that hallway. Uh, yeah. And and something as beautiful and wonderful as for you is a rarity. Yes, <laughs> yes. And the other special thing, just like kind of a sweet, great little thing is I met Mark Marin in that hallway as well <laughs> and had this like long, wonderful conversation with him. And I was able to tell him how much I loved his podcast and all that stuff. So that was really great. The one person that, um, that I was following podcast wise at the time was Mark and I, crashed into him i was coming out of the belly room he was coming out of the the or you know and that was just really cool to be able to do that so it, it is kind of a magical it's sort of the the comedy store is a little bit like if hell had a comedy club it would look like that yeah and when i first came to that place it kind of scared the bejesus out of me in a certain way yeah. and then i kind of saw the humor and the the, the deep bonds and the and the kind of strange you know dysfunction and charm to it and then and then i was feeling comfortable there and you know of course brad's a part of it too so so that's the that's story awesome. of that but so what's I, what's i think there's only maybe one comedian in heaven and that's jonathan winters and i think yeah. i think all the other of them are in hell so like you know We're having a much better time all surrounding george carlin <laughs> that's right <laughs> he's so missed <laughs> so what is so what's next for you troy what is i mean granted we're still kind of in this strange limbo land yeah but 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 what are you what are you looking to do what are you hoping to do what do you what do you have lined up i'm just continuing to do what i do you know which is i make people laugh and entertain them and um i wake up and i set my focus and my intention on that and um and then i do whatever uh is on my to-do list for that day and the to-do list largely supports that mm -hmm. almost entirely and if it doesn't support that then i gotta make it's gonna be a damn good reason it's on that to-do list you know it's it's interesting i was listening to an interview with jim carrey um last week and he yeah. talked about how his motivation was to relieve people of concern yeah Mm -hmm. And he said, I know that if I start my day with that intention, I know that I'm doing the right thing, that I'm on yeah. the right track. Yeah. I, it's similar. I finally got some good mentorship about 10 years ago. And, um, and um, 
my mentor helped me to focus my attention and my intentions and and really helped me to to see um, my life as a as a whole in terms of like my um, career aspirations, my creative aspirations, my spiritual aspirations, my physical aspirations, my emotional and mental aspirations, my relationship aspirations. I started seeing those things all as one thing. And I started developing like real practical um, policies and uh, um, practices around those things. And, um, and I gotta say, it's been in the last 10 years that I've really gone, wow, I really never had any tools. Like mm-hmm. I never, you know, like well, I'm, I'm really grateful for the spiritual tools I had that allowed me to, to stay sober and, um, and to transform and, and actually embrace my spiritual life. Like I knew even at the very bottom that there was something spiritual here going on, but I had no understanding, had no real connection. I had no real relationship to it. And it's, you know, it's just like, like, you know, a relationship is something that you put your daily energy and, and intention and attention on. And, um, and now my spiritual relationship gets my daily attention and it gets my intentions. Uh, and so, do, so does my career. And, 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 and so does every area of me, you know, like my mind, my emotions, my uh, my heart, my intuition, my spirit, my ambitions, my dreams, my aspirations, my relationships, they, they all are this one thing. And, um, and like you said, it's because I don't have to have them to be okay, um, then I can, I can have them because I'm already okay. Now that I'm okay, bring them on. (laughs) Do you you feel also that your life contracts or expands according to the amount of gratitude that you have? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's one of the tools and one of the principles that, that I practice. Like I've learned, I've learned there's certain things that I do that help expand and further my purpose and my dreams and my aspirations and there's things that that I do that limit it and hold it back and um, you know and then there's the knowledge of that and then there's the actual practice of it you know? right but the awareness everything starts with awareness once you're yeah. able to sit and go oh that thing yeah we've met before I know you and yeah. you know we're gonna do things a little differently and once you know how to do that when you have that tool that toolkit then things start to shift so yeah well i'm i'm like i'm i don't think i'm much different than most people in this respect that i go once i have the awareness i go okay well i have the awareness that's good enough you know i don't have to go there's a little more yeah why put a bunch of marks on those tools you know let's let's just leave them there in the toolkit uh they're pristine you know they don't have any marks on them from being used you know I'm no all, dirt I'm on the awareness you know no dirt on that pickaxe yeah exactly <laughs> you know if i ever want to sell it you know then i it's in brand new condition you know so yeah i i would much rather have the awareness than do the work but 
but I, you know, fortunately, I have a very low tolerance for pain, um, especially emotional pain. And um, I, if I, if I am complacent, then I immediately, uh, almost immediately, start feeling the ramifications of that now. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I finally see that as a gift. Absolutely. Well, you can see when you're drifting off course, like oh. <laughs> a little bit yeah it's i think I, I think i'm more i think i'm more uh get uh get my attention or get snapped out of my daydream by hitting the 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 um uh what do you call it the the on the highways the um the, oh the 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 uh, the like the bumper guards on the side yeah. of the guardrails yes yeah I hit the guardrail, the guardrail shakes me out of my little daydream and I go, oh fuck, I just fucked my car up, you know? Like, or like, that's, that's the little bumper strips, the the, the bump strips on the, the ding, 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 ding. oh, yeah. <laughs> ding, 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 you know, yeah. back on track. <laughs> yeah, I usually just tend to get a little groove and go, wow, what a cool rhythm, da, 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 you know? And then I hit the guardrail, yeah. Yeah, wow, we have had quite a journey here. This has been amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. This has been so great and lovely and, and, and inspiring and all of that. And, you know, I think, I, I think you've given some people something to think about, you know? I hope so. Because otherwise, it's just a bunch of fucking talking about me and who gives a shit. <laughs> <laughs> I you. mean, I love talking about me, but, fuck, you know, to sit there for an hour and go, oh, God. I'm just finished. Does he die soon? Is that... <laughs> Oh, this guy. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, we get it. He's had a lot of fun, okay? That's, I think, my, so my autobiography, I was thinking about that. The title, the title of my autobiography is going to have to be, well, if I tell the truth, they'll think I'm bragging. That's, <laughs> that's the title of my autobiography. That sounds like something that comes from somebody who's lived in Texas for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If I open my mouth, I'm probably bragging. Thank you, Troy. Thank you, Dana. And that was Austin's own Troy Dillinger. Hope you enjoyed the chat. Speaking of Austin and all things music, let's end with some notes today. This is OK from Troy's 1999 release, Vivre, or Vivre, V-I-V-R-E, available on all platforms. Until next time, wishing you well, wishing you all good things, and I'll see you on the other side. Here's a song for you.
ready to stir it.